You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Eugene, for those who haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and tell our listeners what we're talking about today. I'm Dr. Eugene Chan, and I'm the co-founder and chairman of APRO, which is a company focused on developing novel cancer antibodies as well as biosynthetic antibodies towards other heat pressing disorders that might afflict a lot of people. Today, we'll talk about Abro, the ins and outs of our company, as well as how we discover drugs and also partner to be able to bring these drugs to patients. Eugene, I've got a handful of brothers, and our big challenge of the year is deciding where we're going to play our annual Turkey Bowl touch football game. You and your brother, though, started a drug company. It's just beyond me how you would start a drug company and bring a product to market. It's a long path and everyone in the business knows that. And But I think the journey is worth it because basically you get to be able to make therapies that address the new patient indications. I suppose you don't start the day you leave college and say, we're starting up a drug company right now. That's tricky. So I think in order to be able to do that, I think basically you need a pretty extensive set of skill sets around the table. And so I think the skill set that my brother and I bring to the table is that I'm a doctor by training. So basically I've gone through a lot of the training required to basically understand how therapies are used. And then while doing this, basically also went through a training to understand sort of the basic biochemistry of these drugs. On the flip side, my brother, he worked out Wall Street, so he's a business guy. So he basically has a biology background and at some point wanted to go to med school, but really kind of realized that it would be better to basically go on to the financing side of things where basically he was involved with a sort of financing of biotech companies as well as M&A of biotech companies. So it was pretty logical to kind of put our skill sets together and see if we could kind of create something that could basically address medical disorders where they weren't optimally getting addressed. And one of the big ones is obviously cancer. Eugene, is the conversation with your brother like, hey, bro, let's start a drug company. Is it that or, is, or am I missing something? So I think that's sort of the nature of it. I think in some ways, because we have such a good working relationship, mm -hmm. and just to kind of give you some context, he's the older brother, and we've shared the same room for probably more than half our lives. Is that right? And just think about that. I mean, even with my wife and what, I don't think I've spent as much time with her. And so that makes a pretty special relationship. And whether you've kind of played together or you've kind of got through, had fights together and put each other in headlocks and stuff like that. Just <laughs> like you've done it too, right? Absolutely. All right. So Eugene, so you formed this company and are you yourself thinking of, hey, this chemical structure would be cool if we could do this or that? Or is your role more in hiring the people that you think can do this. You guys have been around for, what, 13, 14 years? 
how much of that is you saying, hey, I have this idea for this or that? Is it that down and dirty or am I thinking too small? Um, I think you're thinking about it as correctly. So I think there's two sides of biotech that make it pretty interesting from my perspective. Yeah, first of all, it's a teachable. So I think that's, you have to kind of realize that you're climbing this gigantic mountain and if you're going to do this thing by yourself, you're not going to get it, right? So basically you want like a super amazing team to kind of climb this mountain with you. And so who better to do it with that than my brother? And so on top of that, we've actually built out this amazing kind of board of directors and also scientific advisory board versus our board director sat as Bob Langer on it. He's the founder of Moderna. And so absolutely you've had some success there. And then on the scientific advisory board side, we've had Lori Glimcher, who's the head of David Farber Cancer Institute. We have Ron Levy, who's the, like he basically helped find, found IDEC, which basically merged with Biogen. So basically all these kind of, kind of big experiences around the table to climb this mountain. And that's sort of the team effort about this whole thing. But at the same time, the big picture is not going to solve sort of the, basically that specific kind of indication that you have. And so that's where sort of this like immense training kind of goes in. And, and one of the things that I think is really important is at the end of the day, it comes down to a single amino acid modification. It'll come down to a single sequence that basically now ultimately is success of failure. And if you don't understand it to that level of degree, then basically you're risking. And so I think, so for myself, basically it's kind of bringing sort of this ability to kind of build a team, but at the same time, understand that down to the exact pH conditions and be able to ask the tough questions to the team so that there's no stone over that's unturned in this entire process. And then that way you kind of get to the right answer. And that's really what this is about. Eugene, all right, with these board members, I know that they became well-known because of their talents and skills. Is it important to have them or as part of it, you letting people know that your company is serious because you've got these names? Is it like having a name brand on your board? Yeah. So th I think that's a very good question. And I think here in this case, I think they're, it's less of a name brand. I think it's actually both. So basically it's a great name brand, but at the same time, these folks, they bring real expertise to the table. Otherwise, they, they would be the name brand. So it's almost like a chicken or egg situation for that. And I think a lot of companies make the mistake of sort of seeing, hey, these guys are famous. We're going to plaster a wall where we're getting involved and not tap into their expertise. And so I think for us, I think one of the great things about working with folks like Dr. Lair is he's an awesome name, but we also know how to work. And so you, we can tap into his expertise. I can drop my email, get right back to me, talk about any issue. And he's just incredibly wise. And so that's, I think when you can do that, then you basically have, you've kind of moved past sort of the current limitations of clustering fancy names all over your, your company. You've actually now tapped into your expertise, which is what made them successful. It's kind of like a piano player who only knows fear release and they buy some $100,000 piano or something because they hope it pulls it out of them. But this isn't the case. You've got the name brand people in quotes, but you know how to use them. And then it all comes together nicely. Yeah. So in my spare time, I do fishing. And people talk to me about fishing. It's, this is trout fishing. And it's kind of fun. What's up? It just because 
you know, I think we can all relate to it. And so people come to me, it's like, hey, Eugene, like, what kind of equipment do you use? I'm like, it's not about the equipment that he needs. You can go in there with like a stick and I'm like some bait and you can catch fish if you know how to do it. And yeah, but let's say you did have the fancy piece of equipment and you knew how to use it. Exactly. That's exactly. The super advisory board member or board member. My brothers and I used to do just, I mean, we were way down the level, but we would do triathlons and we'd always pick on each other by saying, hey, why don't you save $5,000 on that bike and lose 15 pounds? And that's going to be the same thing. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, that's a perfect analogy, right? I mean, that's a, I I think ultimately it's, if you want to get that competitive advantage, I think you're going to look for anywhere, but I think sometimes the most competitive pieces are most obvious and it's something yes. also will give you, right? All right, Eugene, I was at a get together Saturday night and I was like the only gray haired person there. I guess I'm getting older, but my son invited us. So we're at this party and one of the people there was joking about how they didn't like Billie Eilish. Billie, the singer, yep. Yep. they didn't like her for this or that reason. And I said, what really intrigues me is that she won all these Grammys. She and her brother wrote these songs and they did all the recording in like their little bedroom in their, in their parents' house for the first album. And I, th- I said, that's what really fascinates me because I used to dabble in that a little bit and it's just fascinating. And I think of the, the structures that were sort of maybe torn down I'm thinking of all these all these studios that charge hundreds of dollars per hour and things like that. And I thought, what did that change in the market? I know you're not going to create a drug in your garage, but are drug companies, are they getting there with the computers and all that, that it's just less than was needed? And, and you can throw anything in there you want to, AI or this and that, but is there any correlation with drugs at all with this? So this is interesting. Yeah, I wish we could discover drugs in our bedrooms. That would be amazing. I think that would sort of create a material kind of transformation of the healthcare industry. Unfortunately, basically drugs development is still remains very expensive. So I think on average, it takes close to a billion dollars to bring one of these things to market. But still remains ridiculous. However, I think the early stages of discovering and knowledge about molecules and them being able to bind to target molecules. Like in our case, we have these bispecific antibodies, which basically bind to two targets. So essentially they'll bind to target on the cancer cell. And then they'll activate the immune system with a person to basically bring these these, uh, T cells over to basically fight cancer. And so the cool thing about this stuff is that there's a lot of knowledge about how potentially you can do this. And so you could actually cook up some sequences for antibodies pretty much, you know, in your bedroom. But in order to get these things tested, that's where it becomes really complex because now you need a wet lab, you need animal model, and at some point down the road, you need monkeys. These are all things that once you start experimenting on these animals, essentially that's where it gets very serious because now you need drug product. You have all this stuff is sterile and you can't have like fungus growing in this thing and it needs to be perfectly pure and definitely can't do it in my bedroom <laughs> or or any kind of schleppy garage. So 
I think that's where the limitation is. But I think if you can kind of shortcut that beginning piece, you've already kind of probably cut out like a hundred million dollars out of this thing. And so, and these sound like sort of gigantic numbers, but that's essentially what I like about being able to move something to a patient because ultimately you want to be able to have something A that works and also it's of the quality that is suitable for administration into a person. All right, Eugene, now this show is the business of pharmacy and that's because nobody trusts me to talk about medical stuff. But let me see if I have this straight. These drugs you make, they kind of mimic possibly something in the body to fit the puzzle piece of what you're trying to get at. But the question I have is, you can design a lot of stuff, but don't you still then have to find ways to create it like this recipe Well, you first add this and then you do this and then you add this product? I mean, you've got to build it through a sequence of ingredients, sort of. I know I'm supposed to know this, but is that even close? Well, that's close. That's, that's exactly what happens in making a drug. So essentially... There's a protocol that you follow pretty much like a kitchen recipe. And and the recipe is scientifically complex. So basically you need to be a scientist to understand some of this. And in our case, basically what holistically you're taking a bunch of cells that make this bi-specific antibody molecule and you grow up the cells in a reactor and these cells then essentially make this by specific antibody that you can pure. So now you basically have, you go through this process where you basically get to very pure drug substance. And then you go, there's a series of QC steps where you basically ensure that there's no, nothing that can be bad for a person, toxins from bacteria or anything like that. And then once, once it's gone through the pure QC process on the back end, you want to ensure that the activity of this molecule meets your expectation. And so it has to be able to perform as it would based on preconceived kind of success criteria. And this might be binding to, binding to T cells, it might be binding to uh, your target molecule, it might be activation and basically ability to basically kill uh, your cancer cells. And once you've actually met all those metrics, then basically at this point, uh, you can basically now ship um, your product. But there's obviously all the regulations that go with it as well. So which are reasonably complex. So you, we actually have sort of groups of people uh, basically focused on all this stuff. Uh, and some people may say that, hey, this is boring stuff, right? Uh, but I think to folks like myself, I find that you have to pay attention to that. It's just like the at the very beginning when I said, hey, you have to create an awesome team, but at the same time, you need to know the details as well. Because if you're not paying attention to things like quality processes, if you're not keeping a lot of notebooks and things like that, then you're shortcutting a process to potentially what would be a very successful drug that could benefit a lot of patients. Eugene, when I was in high school, you think of high school sports. I played second string on the football team and uh, I was a swimmer. One of those is very objective, the swimming. It's, it's a timed sport. The other one is very subjective. For example, I only played freshman, sophomore year, and the guy that played in front of me went on to play at a Division II college, tried out for the Cowboys, and he made like the state 
team, you know, the mythical team. I forget the term for it. So I always figured that I was number two in the state. I just never got to show my skills. It's a drug process. Are you ever dealing with subjectiveness? If Sally Smith would have looked at this governmental level, if they would have looked at it instead of Bob Jones, it probably would have gone through. Is there subjectivism in there or is it pretty much if you get things in certain order, they're going to fly? Yeah, those are kind of great questions. And I think we try to take the subjectiveness out of it while we design especially things like clinical trials and success criteria. And I think one of the big things is you always want to create objective sort of success criteria and quantitative success criteria so that basically you can't argue but you can point to. And unfortunately, I think in medicine, basically medicine is actually shade to gray. And so this is where I think it gets a little bit more complex. For instance, like you might have things don't fall as neatly in place as you might think it does. For instance, you might get a patient who is, who's kind of come in, but at the same time, maybe they missed an appointment and they're three days late and now they're on a different dosing schedule than what you expect. And now you do you make up for it. Do you follow the protocol? So you'll get things like that. And some of these things, maybe it's a protocol deviation, maybe, or maybe a soul is within a protocol. And you'll see things like that where you have to kind of sit through, which are less black and white, that ultimately will may decide sort of the success of the trial or not. But taking a step back, you want to be able to design these trials so that if stuff like that does happen, that regardless of what the answer is, basically the path to success is basically still there. All right, Eugene, when you are daydreaming, where I might daydream about, if I'm dreaming about the business, which I try not to do, but let's say I am and I'm thinking of a new system to get the drug delivered to a person at a certain time and how to follow up and all that kind of thing, that might be a a daydream and I'm not thinking about something in accounting or something like that. It just doesn't thrill me. Sometimes you have to think about it, but it doesn't thrill you. At your level in the company, are you still daydreaming and thinking about drug structures for the certain drug you need to make? Or are all your daydreams taken up by thinking about the next round of investing or something like that? Yeah. So those are great questions. So I think for me as a sort of scientist, doctor type, I love the details. And so when something tells me, hey, we made this one modification to this molecule that we're testing. Basically, my first kind of questions could be like, oh, what is it? And basically, what's telling me what the sequence changes, right? And things like that. So that's sort of the level of detail I personally exist in. And that's sort of where I think ultimately expertise comes from as well, because ultimately for knowledge, because of whatever the knowledge is here, in this case, drug knowledge is actually very granular, but the more granular knowledge that you have, the better offset you're able to make certain calls you know, within your company, as well as be able to move some of these programs along. And I think that's all comes down to sort of a company that's able to make some progress and a company that's able to make a lot. I remember when my dad was alive and he was in the pharmacy and didn't have the granular handle on things that he had 10 years earlier. So let's say he was 65 at the time. He didn't have the same handle he did when he was 50. Yet, because I was more second in command, when something would happen, 
I knew I was going to get my way, but I knew I had to explain it to him to give him the respect of it. And then it would take a day or two to do this and back. And so your decisions that would maybe take X were now four times X because of that layers of this and stuff. So I imagine you having that knowledge and leading the thing really makes things a lot more efficient than if you were explaining every step to a leader or a board and so on. Yeah, because ultimately I think you, it's hard to, I think, do like size by committee because I think we've all kind of gone through it. And I think the size by committee is almost never granular enough. You'll have, you know, a bunch of folks sitting around the table and they'll talk things. I mean, I think in our case, we use our scientific advisory board to make new cards, new areas, basically big picture stuff that indications where basically we could apply our drugs and just general direction. But when it comes time to actually do the science and basically deciding on sort of structured programs and how to kind of move these things forward, ultimately, if you do it by committee, you're not going to get it done because just that example that you just gave me, you're going to have to go through many of those cycles, many of those like your three-day cycles in order to come together with plan is going to be sort of approvable. And if you add that knowledge yourself, you can basically cycle through that within a few minutes, right? Make the next iteration in another few minutes and then and then off, off you go. And by the time you've got a, that multiple days have elapsed, for someone else, they might have gone through three cycles, you've got through 100. And you've kind of gotten closer to basically what would be an ideal solution. Are there companies that have to fight that? Sometimes they bring in somebody and all of a sudden you've got these layers that you wish you didn't have? Definitely. Definitely. I see that. I see those companies all the time. And so it's, and when I, whenever I see them, it tends to be inefficient. And I think the pharmacy example is interesting because I think being a pharmacist, I think the cool thing is because I understand PKs, you understand structures, you understand drug classes. And that's almost like, almost at the level of detail that we need to know things at most. I think the big kind of additional piece that kind of goes on top of it is basically how you make these things. But the end product is basically, it's basically it's whatever's on that FDA label that you, you guys are so mellow with. And a lot of times you also want to work backwards too. You'll also want to say, hey, you just, I'll give you some good examples. For instance, like dosing. You'll look at like certain labels on you know, sort of like uh, similar drugs and say, hey, this thing's not optimally dosed. They got to wear this continuous infusion pump now with them. And as a patient, that's really no real because infections, I can basically, it's just not an optimal solution. And so if you were to have a better dosing, how did you work backwards and basically how does it impact sort of, you know, molecular structure, right? And how do you actually change it so that basically you can sort of meet sort of the ideal profile, the drug that you want. And so a lot of times we actually do that and it's actually a super valuable exercise, but that's also iterative too, because you got to kind of say, hey, this is what we want. We can't do it. Here's if we change this, we can do it. If we change this even more, it'll get closer. We'll basically what we want. And then we'll go run some tests and say, hey, that met half of the criteria, but it didn't beat the full, but we're going to now kind of do additional iteration. How many people in your company, Eugene? We've got it close to 30 folks in our shop. And What's the breakdown of that roughly? Is it so many in the financial side, so many scientists and so on? Yeah. So it tends to be predominantly scientists and that folks who are technically oriented. We have a goal sort of the clinical trial staff as well, as well as clinical operations. So between clinical and scientific, basically 
that covers probably the majority of the company. And then we have obviously administrative staff and business folks. You've got my brother who's a business guy. He's probably got the toughest job of all because he's a guy who goes out there and basically beats the bushes for money. I call that the boring stuff and the side stuff is, it, so that's where sort of the compliment kind of comes in. You watch that stuff and for me, it's, hey, the cool stuff is the side stuff. And for hey, the cool stuff is the money stuff. Not counting things that a, any company might farm out, some legal and some counting and marketing and things like that. Is there any part of the scientific process that you guys farm out like, I, I can't really think of what it would be like certain steps of the synthesis you kind of farm out. Do you get a company that helps you take it actually to market or does this or that? Or does your company just do all that? Hey, there's sort of a core expertise that we try to maintain within the company. And that's actually tends to be related to the biology of the molecules that we're focused on. For instance, like just to give you an example, we have a HER2 CD3 bispecific T-cell engager, which is for gastric as well as breast cancer. And this is the molecule that we partner with uh, Saltrion, which is a large Korean biotech company. It's going to cut an over a billion dollar deal with these guys. And so with this one particular group, as well as the molecule, basically we have sort of now, we would be like the world's expert in this one molecule. The biology, how do you actually kill cancer cells using or two CD3 bispecific T-cell engagers. And so I think that sort of level of great hilarity and the staff, as well as being able to understand sort of all the nuances of how do you actually use this tool, besides within a company. There's things like, hey, QC of molecule, QC of drug product, stuff like that, which is less interesting. There's a lot of other groups that can possibly do it. So let's stay focused with the main shop inside and basically all this other stuff. Let's kind of outsource that so that basically we, we can still maintain streamlined in terms of the actual biology. The last things you mentioned, Eugene, and I found a few errors in those, but I'm not going to bring it up and embarrass you. <laughs> I'm having trouble to find out if you're still speaking English or not. But the couple things you mentioned about that aren't your direct line, this and that, is that part of that drug still, or are you talking different medicines? Is it part of your drug that you need some other part worked on that is not as exciting or was that a different drug you were talking about? So that was still the same drug, but you know, I think in, in the development, any drug process, you'll have the actual molecule, you'll have the drug, and then you'll also have sort of additional activities on top of it, mm. which are what I call non-core. It's not core, but it's, it's still super important, but basically it's a generic activity that someone else can do. Might um, it be like how it dissolves and things like that or? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's almost a good one. So basically that's so the formulation question, right? So basically how do you actually store it in the vial? How do you actually reconstitute it? So that is, we farm that out. So basically there's companies that do this for a living. We don't, we, we don't do it for a living. There's other people. Who, and so we've partnered with folks on that side to be able to work with developing to sort of the bright formulation so that basically it works all the time and it basically stores for the certain amount of time that we want. Is there any part of the chemical structure that is, I'm doing quotes here, maybe a little bit more boring that some other company does something with part of the chemical structure or is it just things separate from the chemical structure like the storage and that kind of stuff? So the core kind of 
sort of focus is basically the structure of the molecule. So that is completely, that expertise resides within the company completely, as well as basically how to use this molecule. So basically all that kind of like expertise that goes into changing the molecule as well as testing it reside within the company. And that's also part of the secret sauce, right? And so as you can imagine, if we let other people kind of tinker around with the molecule and say, hey, let's change this molecule and I'm going to give you part of the sequence, then at that point, it becomes a little bit tricky. The, even with our co-development partnership, we try pretty careful about that because we don't want, I think we want to maintain full control over it. We want to be able to just kind of carry that expertise throughout. And without it, basically, it's kind of hard to have that continuity as well. And so that's pretty much how we kind of thought about sort of structuring the company. You're mentioning this, and I'm imagining something, but I don't know if you're being figurative, but how quickly could you talk with one of your scientists about it and say, what would this little change do? How quickly does that get changed? You might test in this and that and get an answer. What time frame are we looking at there? Let me see. It would be slower than making a saw, but definitely it would be faster than conventional drug development in the sense that conventional drug development would probably take six months. In our case, because of some of the processes that we have in place, we've kind of shortened some of these processes down to weeks. So there's an incredibly fast time frame where it's, I think it's unusual for industry. So industry would be like somewhere in a six, six to nine month time frame, come back and kind of give you an answer. In our case, you'll know that answer pretty quickly. Are there any spies in the industry like somebody or maybe not even spies but maybe disgruntled scientists that could go and do something somewhere else or is that just something in my mind yeah and it does happen it's and some of these have actually played out in courts right and particularly here you've got some very high value item. These are therapeutics that which might be bringing in like billions of dollars. So what we've kind of seen is that, you know, fortunately, I think most people are honest, which is great. And so I think the majority of folks are very kind of like honest and particularly on the scientific side, folks are tend to be, if they got through all the training, they tend to be like super upright folks. And that's actually great. Fortunately for us, we have not any issues where people are stealing stuff or anything like that, but we're always kind of, kind of cognizant, I think, of kind of sharing sequences. And sometimes you'll actually get strange requests where people kind of come in and say, hey, send us your sequence first. <laughs> and we're like, no. <laughs> and so you just have to kind of be aware that they might not talk to me. So I basically, I've seen, I've seen all the different permutations where someone asks for something where, you know, when you're not intended to get told. Yeah. So they'll ask someone else in your shop who's not as attuned to some of these issues. And so basically, you got to educate your organization about basically keeping intellectual property within your organization. But once you've done that, I think it becomes a pretty straightforward process because even I think there's still a lot of nuances, even if you did get your hands on sort of the secret recipe. Yeah, there's still a lot of nuances as well as process you need to go through in order to make drug product. And that's sort of, I think, one of the challenges. When you talk about a, colloquially like a secret recipe, how much information is that? Is that a page? I always hear of, who is it? Michael Kaku or something. He's some physicist. He always says the, the physicists are looking for the unification of everything theory where it's going to be something that's an inch long, the whole equation. 
But when you're talking about processes, is that a hundred page document? Is it a, a page with a few steps on it? How developed is that process? As far as if someone could steal it, are they stealing a, a picture of a chemical or is it a hundred pages they need to take? Yeah. So most of these things are amazingly simple when it turns out to be the case. So like in our case, you have these bi-specific antibodies, which basically target, target cancers and basically activates the, your body's own natural immune system. Now, in cases like that, it's sequence-based. So basically, it'll occupy maybe like a few lines on your page or something like that, but or five you have this thing at. And as long as you add that, basically, you can potentially be in the same game as we are. And so you can imagine little pieces of paper can get lost pretty easily. You can get emails around pretty easily, right? And that's like, what chemical is needed between this step and that step? So in our case, because it's a protein recombinant biologic, basically, pretty much mostly what you need is the DNA sequence. And at that point, I think there's additional details about, hey, which cell do you grow this thing up in? But yeah, everyone uses pretty much the same thing. And I didn't, what purification do you use? Those are the only things you're missing from that sequence. And basically, everyone can do the same thing, so to speak. But I think their barriers to entry ultimately relate to sort of the biological license application when you kind of get through the whole shebang, the BLA from the FDA. And that is company and drug product specific as well as related to like you, right? So even some copied your they was thought throughout all the clinical trials, they was thought kind of prove it on their own kind of molecule that they kind of made themselves. And so I think that's by going through the right process, I think there's kind of built in safeguards that kind of prevent sort of speedy copying of basically your drug problem. So one of the big interesting things is sort of intellectual property. And so you'll have patents right on the stuff. And so a patent term generally is 20 years for simplicity. And the actual drug development process may take more than a decade, right? And by the time you get to the end of this thing, you might have five years left on your patent term. So in that five years, basically, you better basically sell lots of drug, right? Or let's say you don't, right? And let's say, let's say you're like set and someone steals your form. It's work on the stand, which you actually do see because your patent applications at some point become public. So that's sort of like your trade with the U.S. government. You're saying, hey, I'm going to tell you how to do this thing as long as you give me a 20-year patent protection. Because somewhere it's in print then. It's like you're hoping everybody goes to 20 years, but the information's out there then. It's out there, yeah. So it's out there. And so what you'll see is like from, I think, unethical folks is, or maybe, I, I wouldn't say unethical, but less sophisticated parties, you'll see people kind of going in there reading patents and basically copying your sequence, right? and trying to use it, what they don't realize is on the backside of it, let's say they use that intellectual property, and what they don't realize is that they're not going to be able to practice because you would have received a patent, and then they would not be able to. Essentially, you could take a court, have a patent, which would also demonstrate that you're first at med, things like that. But I think in today's kind of like information rich age, you basically see a lot of that going on. A lot of it actually doesn't get picked up. And so I think drug companies are... I think they're sophisticated, but I think for folks who are pretty good at doing this kind of thing, they'll say, hey, I'm going to take this and I'm going to stick it in my mouth. And even though that's patented, it'll still take them years to figure this thing out that you basically took those three amino acids. So there's tricks to kind of all the stuff that basically how do you actually protect your intellectual property. 
And there's timing of filing of like patents. There's like, when do you do it? What's the best time? Is it like right before your drug goes out? Is it like before you put in clinic? Is it right when you get your first discovery, right? And these are all kind of debatable points when you do it, um, because certain points you might imagine, hey, I got to talk to XYZ investor. They want to see what this thing is about. It's real, right? And at some point, we'll disclose something. It's not allowed, right? This all. And uh, so these are all things I think you you got to juggle as you're kind of doing the kind of the biochemistry behind your molecule to, to, to advance it towards patients. Eugene, give me a taste of the numbers we're talking. I know that the drug costs a billion dollars, and but there's also potential us and all that kind of stuff. J- just roughly, like, how many ideas does your company deal with? And then are there X ideas a month? And then out of that, only 0.1X goes to the next step, and then 0.1 of 0.1 goes to this. What kind of numbers are those? The pyramid of thoughts to final product. And so I think it differs between different companies, but just to kind of give you a sense about Abro, I think for us, we tend to be pretty focused and targeted. And basically we try to not make a mistake before we actually even test it out in the wet chemistry side. So I think that's sort of like one of the key things. You want to kick it around. Maybe there's a quick experiment you can do on the biochemistry side. Maybe it's just some reader in your lab or something like that. And so you want to be able to have some like sense of what success is and be able to narrow pretty quickly without actually doing any work. Because once you start doing work, I think the issue is, and we've actually seen this a lot, is that there's a certain momentum behind it. And then unless you're really good about kind of killing stuff off, right? These things, they tend to be, they can tend to kind of grow. And so basically next thing you know, you're now like working on two of these things. <laughs> and then next thing you know, you're working on three of them. And then it's almost like, it's you got to maintain that discipline. It's almost going to be able to exert that kind of high quality control at the get go and say, "Hey, this is a dumb idea, right?" And or maybe we can kind of rule it out based on X. We're not even going to try it, right? Uh, because the issue is, if you have a let's say you have a seventy percent baked idea, you go in there and you try it out. It's gonna you're gonna require a lot of iterations to kind of get to that point where you actually have something that's that is rock solid. But if you start with something that's 85%, right? Or maybe even if you're lucky, like over 90%, close to what you're, what you want to get at, then you're going to be much closer to success because now your branching pattern is much more narrow. And basically you can get to the success path a lot easier. And so for us, I think I would say to move something forward, I think it's probably around 10 or eight iterations or something like that before there's something that's like really kind of, kind of believable and good. But even within those 10, it's highly selected for, basically, there's probably another two orders of magnitude that gets screened out based on either notebook analysis or software analysis. These days, yeah, there's a lot of AI tools that you can, we use that you tap into that you can basically say, hey, structurally, this doesn't make sense. Let's kind of rule that out. Or maybe you can say, hey, these things don't make sense either. You know, basically, these things out as well. And then, and even with a super targeted shot, You'll discover something. There's always like one thing that you overlook, no matter how good you are. And then with those, hopefully you do a few tweaks. That's where the sort of the 10 tweaks show up that kind of get you close to reality. And then you're going to discover more stuff as you kind of get into testing on animals 
And you'll, there's always one or two things that pop up. Hey, this thing is not behaving exactly as expected, but it has more activity here, but less here. Uh, of course, got this side effect that, that we didn't anticipate. And then we had to basically tune it so that you don't have that side effect. Let's say that there's an idea that you kick around. Hey, what about this? Is that something that doesn't go far at all? Is that like one a week, one a year, one a day? How often is the very lowest level kicked around a different drug? I kick stuff around in my head all the time. So. <laughs> I'll be like reading some scientific journal somewhere and be like, hey, that would be interesting with the X, Y, Z. And then I would kind of dig into the seal a little bit yeah. more. That's going to be reality. So you're thinking about them all the time and you're just kicking yeah, them definitely. out of your head then. Definitely. And by now I've seen enough stuff where I got to know what's going to be a good flavor versus a bad flavor, right? But in terms of actually testing it, I think it's actually less than that. It might be like one a month or what could be two months because of the enormous kind of, I think, the system that needs to go behind it. Now, Eugene, I'm trying to picture this. All right. So let's just say your ideas, when you think of an idea, is your idea like, oh, I thought of a little tweak we could do on this drug to maybe have less of a side effect for this whole thing? Or is it, hey, I thought of a drug we can use to whatever people need to do, grow an arm back or something. Are they different ideas or are you thinking usually of your top drug and what could be refined on it? So I think it's two classes of it's actually both old. So I think the what I call is the sort of day-to-day drug development is sort of basically the tweaks. You have something where it substantially meets basically what you want to be making, but it might be formulational. It might be, hey, we need to get the concentration of drug from X to X, and basically the drug needs to be in this format. And we'll work with, for stuff like that, we're, we're getting data back from, that's a perfectly partnered activity, right? So we'll get data back from partners, review it with them, and kind of give input in terms of ex- experimental plan in terms of improving that. And then you'll see some other items where I think it's sort of not at that stage, and you're not at the stage of like manufacturing, but you're at the stage where, hey, this thing just showed up and it demonstrated some great activity, but here's the issues, right? Number one, unanticipated issue. and we didn't go into thinking thinking that it would show up, but here it is. So that would be like a second tier where it's kind of less tweaking, but now you got to take a look at the whole thing and say, hey, maybe it's like these three amino acids from the end terminus to middle and also the end of the molecule as just on this one family of the molecule. And so you'll need to kind of make changes like that and be able, be able to quickly test it again to make sure that you're not completely way off. And sometimes when you make these changes, and you re-break something, right? <laughs> We've all done that and different kind of kind of things. You might be like building a shed or something like that and like you put the wrong screw in, right? And that wrong screw turns out to be a little too long and kind of prevents your door from going, right? <laughs> you got to back tight. You got to fix that. You also got to make sure you don't, basically you got to retest it so that basically you, you don't break something else and fix it. And so those are kind of second tier problems and then sort of the, kind of the blue sky ones, which are, Pretty interesting. Those are, I think, probably tend to be the most exciting, but at the same time, I think those are the ones where you want to basically run sort of the dazzling experiments in your head and say, hey, this makes sense, this doesn't make sense. And you always want to try to disprove it. And then you'll kick around with your team members too. You'll be like, hey, I'll like, you know, am I completely silly to thinking about X? And then 
you want to bring like the folks into the room as well if you don't have that background. And I think my favorite is you'll have the perfect team is you have four positive folks who are like really like kind of enthusiastic and be like, let's go get them. And then it's always helpful to have that one person who is a little bit more grounded in reality saying, hey, you can't do it. If you do that, and you would fail miserably. <laughs> and then at that point, you're like, you're kind of dousing all this thought and saying, hey, okay, this kind of makes sense in light of XYZ's objections. We'll take his thoughts and considerations and we'll try to like circumvent that one issue. At that point, you've kind of pressure tested the stamp and then maybe it's ready for like a real kind of like experimental fly at that point. All right. So when you talk about these tweaks, not how to think of the tweak, but to actually change it, do you have a little bit of liquid or something to add another arm to the chain? You drop some of this in it and heat it up and do this or that. Is that what we're talking about? Kind of. So this is, again, it's a biological, so it's like a protein, right? So this is a antibody. So essentially, as you're now into recombinant DNA technology, so you'll take a piece of DNA that's in a format where you can modify it. So basically, hmm. I can now go in and I can you know, change a T to an A or a G to a T or something like that. With a certain chemical? So these are the done with enzymes. So you'll basically go in there and basically do essentially use enzymes that can basically cut DNA. Yeah. So you'll basically extract a section of DNA, remove it, and then now you'll basically insert a new piece of DNA in that one region and then basically splice it back together. You're not talking one gene there. Are you talking a, a, a trillion of these cells or something? Or you mean one actual DNA and you're actually doing something with that. Yeah. So this tends to be, it tends to be multiple copies of that gene. Uh, and so basically now you're basically changing it. So like anytime you do, so this enzymatic or recombinant DNA manipulation and basically splicing it back together, anytime you're doing that, you're going to be successful due to some other molecules, but not all the molecules. So then after you've done that, now you need a means of selecting for the good ones. Ones that actually drop the gene that you wanted in there. And there's a process where you kind of now grow this, a lot of times it's bacteria, in other cases it's like some other system. But in the case of bacteria, you're, you're basically now growing this thing up. And only the bacteria that has the correctly inserted gene will grow because you have, you have a selection medium it's a, that's in there. You put a drug in there that only select for the one that basically can grow in the presence of this. And then once you have enough, and by that bacteria growing it, now basically makes copies of that DNA. And then you purify now like what's going to be a bazillion of copies of this DNA. And then you could put it in different cell types, like Chinese hamstery ovary cell or baclovirus or other crazy cells. And then use that to kind of create basically human like protein, which is ultimately using your bird drug product. So all this stuff is all kind of biological and enzymes. And the cool thing is all, it's all done at 37 degrees, which is body temperature. And so if you have, let me see, if you didn't break your bread, right? I mean, you've got yeast in there that like you're propagating. So it's still a process, but you know, now it's like bacteria. And as long as they can get the stuff to grow and kind of reproduce copies of my DNA, then you can purify that DNA, put it into a system where I can now make a lot of protein 
which is essentially my drug product. I mean, basically have that in a pure form so that I can treat patients. So Eugene, I was on your website and I see the graph of different drugs in their process and so on. Are they coming out with your company on them or are you selling them finally to another company or what's the final product? So the final product is basically, I think in a lot of cases, it's basically a partner drug substance. So for instance, like in our partnership with uh, Celtrion, this Korean biotech company, essentially they're the distributor for the drug. And in that particular deal, it's a geographic distribution. So basically for Asia, they basically get the seller under their mm. name. Uh, so essentially the Apple name will not show up mm. in that particular case. And a lot of these cases, the whole drug distribution side of the business is like even, I think the scale required for the bigger, because basically now you're talking, you know, how do you actually get this drug to, I think here in this case, infusion clinics, cancer infusion clinics, right? And so these tend to be now pharmacies within hospitals, right? And there's special handling. How do you actually constitute to just put it with sampling bags and kind of all that stuff, right? And these are going to be in different languages. It's going to be like in Chinese, Korean, Japanese, particularly with this one particular or two uh, CD3 molecule. But without that sort of like distribution platform, it's almost impossible for a small company to kind of do it themselves. So you'll, what you'll see is nothing. In pretty much all our cases, it's going to be a partner kind of distribution of the drug. You're not going to see the Apple name on it because I think in a lot of these cases, basically it's XYZ drug company who's way bigger than we are <laughs> coming and say, hey, we want XYZ to your drug, but we'll sell it for you. And then, but we want our name on it. And so that's sort of the bargain that you make as a huge drug developer with all these guys. And it's a win, I think, in all cases because by Basically, getting that partnership revenue in, essentially, now you get the basically, at some point, you'll see companies, early stage biotech companies, kind of come up with their own drug, with their own label, and their own names. And at that point, you've kind of matured into a real kind of stable-owned drug company at that point. Do you hope to get to that point? Oh, definitely. We have to have your name on something. Oh, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That would be something, wouldn't it? Definitely. Definitely. To say you invented something and then, I mean, I know you got money to show for it, but you invented it and there's, your name's nowhere on it. Yeah. Bragging rights. Yeah. Bragging rights. There you go. There you go. Speaking of bragging rights, Eugene, I know the benevolence of wanting to cure cancer and these kind of things. I understand that. But as far as bragging rights go... And we all have to pretend that we're humble and we don't care of this or that. But what would be cool for you? So we already talked about getting your name on the product, Epro name. Is there any other awards? Am I going to see the Nobel Prize for you? What would be cool for you? See, that's kind of interesting. So I think, yeah, I'll kind of talk about the humility piece first, just because I think ultimately, I think that's... There's kind of two sides to this, right? So I think in order to do good, good science, you have to have sort of that level of humility because every day you're facing sort of sun problem that's kind of kicking your For you to kind of go in there and have a, hey, I'm better than nature, you've got to have it to, you're just going to lose. Just, so I think, and so I think that's one side of it that's kind of, kind of pretty huge. So I think basically if you're in the business of doing what, what I'm doing, basically, you kind of have to maintain that humility no matter what kind of success that you have. 
at the end of the day, you also have to be pretty mindful that I think a lot of stuff on the outside is ultimately, I think the big success is obviously for the patients. And so is there anything beyond that for me personally? Yeah, I think it's tricky to say. I think I would be very happy if there's one person that was that, that could not be cheered, and, but now they could be with one of the drugs that we have, even if it's one person. Because you know who that person might be? It might be your mom, it might be your sister, it might be their right? And I think that in itself, knowing that's going on, is basically what personally drives me. And seeing my name and random stuff is cool too, but I think at the same time, it, being grounded in that level of humility is sort of ultimately super important. And, but I think for Abro, I think, you know, yeah, being able to see Abro plastered everywhere is going to be awesome. When you talk about a cure, I'm so used to cancer drugs. They help prolong Mr. Smith's life and this yeah. and that. Are these drugs in the line of saying that somebody had this and now they no longer have it? Is it like a black and white switch of success? That's what we hope. So I think mean, going into this, I think you've by now you've thought that enough kind of companies and things like that to know that or we kind of know yourself personally in terms of being a pharmacist. I think there's a sort of a misconception that, hey, we've made these amazing strides against cancer. Those amazing strides are actually, hey, prolong someone's life lifespan from six months to 18 months, right? That one additional extra year is not a lot of time, particularly if it's someone that you like. And so I think here in our case, I think because of, I think the powerful nature by which we're tapping into the body's immune system to fight essentially cancer, there is that potential hope that some of these therapies will be way more effective than conventional chemotherapy, conventional antibody monotherapy, and there's precedence for that level of efficacy in kind of similar types of work that we've done as well as other folks have done. And I think the simple way that we could kind of describe what we're doing is we're essentially trying to take sort of this concept of cell therapy, which is sort of like your body's immune system phytochemistry, and kind of making it so that you can administer in sort of an easy way. Cell therapy is challenging because you got to take the cells out of the body and then you got to modify it to stick it back in. In our case, you don't have to do that. You could basically now kind of convert your body's immune system and these wonderful T cells that you have to basically now help clear what's abnormal inside your body. And basically, these things are very effective at clearing, unless you're infected with the virus, they're very effective at clearing it out and within like weeks of your diet. So the hope is basically you apply that same technology that exist in your body to basically have the same effect on these kind of forward cell body. Eugene, is there any holy grail of drug discovery? Let's just say in your category, is there any holy grail of everybody's kind of things are getting better and better? Is there ever like a big jump and what would that be? Or is it just continual innovation and things like that? Yeah, I think we're, particularly for cancer, I think we're at a stage where it's ready for that big jump. And we've seen kind of pieces of it. I think cell therapy was like a big one that kind of popped up. Like cell you, therapy, like you said, is using your own cells, changing yep. them a bit, and then reusing them. That's right. So cell therapy, I think the issue is, so cell therapy is, there's the original cell therapy is basically you got to take the cells out of the body. And now I got it modified in some kind of sterile, clean condition. 
and then sticking it back into the person's body. Like these CAR T cells, super effective. I think when the data was first presented, people's jaws dropped because of the cure rate. In complete remission. And so it was like, it was amazing. And the issue was like, these things, you can't make them. So you can't make them cost effectively enough so that you could now be able to administer it. And, so, and that's where basically our kind of approach comes in. It's basically kind of taking that potential of this very powerful kind of, not an incremental change, but, you know, basically it's a pretty significant step change and be able to now uh, give that to a lot of people. But there's other things like that potentially as well um, that are out there as well. And so I think it was just for us to kind of keep our eyes peeled. And I think it's also never to uh, really, I think there's cancers, but it's a pretty insidious thing. It's really, it's, you want to be able to constantly innovate and constantly kind of show people's knowledge about sort of the disease to come up with sort of new, sort of safe approaches to be to basically clear out cancer. Eugene, what's the worst couple hours of your week? And is, can you do anything about that? I mean, I've got things I've got to do. And maybe if I had a ton of money, I'd hire someone to do it for me, this or that. Is there any part that you're kind of, you're just kind of stuck with the job that you wish you, it's not your favorite? Yeah, I think everyone's got those things. For me, it does to be the administrative items, right? And whether it's like filling out like some paperwork for someone, the core. It's a necessary evil, but it's almost like you know the form you got to fill out, or it tends to be stuff like that tends to bog you down. And some of these things, like you can't find someone else to do it for you because it, there's some stuff that if you had someone else do it for you, you'd have to sit right next to them, yeah, and and spoon feed them the information. It's yep. like, yep. well, all right, yep. you saved me from writing with my hand, but that's about it. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think stuff like that probably consumes half a day, um, half a week. But I think other than that, I think it's great that I think I get to do what I get to do. It's almost, I feel lucky. Part of it's hard work as well, but I think it's being able to be in a position to think it at that level of granularity to pull a team together and to address some pressing problems. I think it's just a stroke. It's motivational every day. I tell a lot of, well, I don't tell a lot of people this, but I think about, let's say my pharmacy, let's say I had, I have one, let's say I had 50 of them. Then... My day's different. Maybe at 50, I would enjoy things more, but maybe at 500, now you're sitting up alone in some ivory tower and, and maybe you don't like that. So there's a certain level, but yours seems really cool of the granularity of getting in there, yet having the power to make things happen. Yeah. And I think there's uh, there's also, I think the team aspect of it is kind of interesting. And I think I'll kind of share with you some kind of early kind of life stories, but you know, when you're going to go through, I think, building a team and things like that, I think if you're classically trained as a scientist, I think it tends to be kind of hard because it's a lot of stuff is tend to be me, right? And the team is kind of not about, it's about, it's about being able to cope and being able to kind of bring sort of right skill sets together. Like that's why it said, hey, four positive guys plus like the ninth guy, perfect team. We'd be able to spot things like that. So now you're kind of going back to like your football example, right? So your football example, your, your team was probably pretty good. And then basically you have uh, sort of different skill sets on the football team. And basically it's, you might have someone who's kind of athletically gifted, but if they're paired with the wrong guys, then the team's just not going to make it. Or if you have, let's say a good offense, but your defense sucks, right? Then it's, well, I'm not going to make it. Or the other one is you could 
I think what I like the most is you could bring, I think, what seemingly are reasonably ordinary people together. And when they're operating and functioning together, basically that's where the brilliance happens. And when that is for me, it's just like, it's kind of, it's joyful. You're like, hey, I was just like, yeah, I've got to accomplish my mission here because now you're seeing stuff that you don't expect and they're basically kind of doing more than like you think that was possible. And then once that, once you start getting it, getting that piece going, basically now you're unstoppable and now you, you can just go through pretty much any obstacle that you, you see. Years ago, I went to a pharmacy ownership thing. This is, golly, this is 30 years ago. And I hate teamwork. I, I just don't like doing teamwork. But they gave us each a sheet of paper and they said, here's what you have, these 10 items, and we're going to, this is just a mind thought, we're going to put you down in the middle of Alaska. Here's the things you have, and you have these 10 items now escape or whatever. And everybody came up with their stuff. And then they put us together with a team of six of us, same question, same list of 10 things. And it was just amazing what we came up with six of us, how we would have escaped. And obviously it was a lot better than each of us on our own. And teamwork, when it's good, it, it works. And, and, it, and it works above six. It turns into 15 and it turns into 10, 12, 15, 20, the power of minds, even though there's six of you there kind of thing. Yeah. And I think there's also not only do you get good ideas, but I think with sort of, I think letting go is also a big part of it too, because now it's, it's the coach versus player, right? When I think about sort of the graveyard nature of kind of the molecules, that's like the player, right? That's like me as in that particular role. But when you're working together, team, you're taking a step back and you're playing coach. And at times you got to flip between the two. And when you're playing coach, I think there's this whole process of letting go and kind of fostering and, and trusting. And they're not going to, they're going to make different decisions than you. And at, sometimes like you may be like, hey, that's not the decision I would have made. Right. And that whole trust that they're going to make a right decision and basically make sort of the right progress and people design sort of the right experiments. I mean, that whole process Essentially, letting go is sort of, I think, one of the most liberate parts about all the work that I do. And because it's almost like now you're seeing sort of this, you're fostering this environment for success, which is less predicted than sort of the linear path that you could have taken. But unfortunately, Eugene, I suck at the coach too, because, all right, so even though I'm the second best quarterback in the state, in my mind, I stop after sophomore year because I don't think I played a down. And so... I go and I become a fifth and sixth grade football coach at my old elementary school. So on our punt team, so this is my, my genius, on our punt team, the only count we have is a delayed count. So the whole game we're going on hut one, but in the punt, we're always going to go on hut two in order to draw the other team off and then maybe get a first down. The problem I had is I never put in an escape from that. And so every time we tried to punt, each of my guys would jump off sides. So we'd be like on the 45-yard line to punt, and now we're on the 40-yard line. Now we're on the 30-yard line because my guys are jumping every down, and I didn't have a way out of it. So these whole coaching and football analogies don't work with me. <laughs> 
That's a great one. Yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> Eugene, boy, continued best wishes for Apro. There's some of these shows that I know about this stuff, but this, I had no idea what's going on here. So such a pleasure to talk to you and get inside the walls of this and see what was going on. Very fascinating. So thanks for your time. And thank you so much, Mike, for yeah, having me on your show. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.